Greetings and welcome to Harvard Islamica, the podcast of the Al-Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University. I'm Tariq Masood, the faculty director of the program and a professor at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. In this podcast, our executive director, Harry Bastarmajian, and our program coordinator, Miriam Qadhimi, will bring to you the latest exciting developments in the field of Islamic studies from scholars at Harvard and beyond. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. To learn more about our programs, follow us on Twitter at Harvard Islamic. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions at our email address, islamicstudies at harvard.edu. Please enjoy this episode of Harvard Islamica. One morning in early February, I left my apartment in the middle-class neighborhood of Do'i to attend a morning class taught by Sheikh Amr al-Wardani in Al-Azhar Mosque. When I arrived at the mosque at the appointed class time of 7 a.m., Sheikh Amr had not yet arrived. Inside Ruwak al I found a small group of women sitting near the back of the hall on the red carpet patterned with repeating mihrabs. No male students had arrived yet. When I found a place on the carpet, I noticed that most of the students looked like foreigners coming, as I would later learn, from Malaysia and Indonesia. When Sheikh Amr finally arrived after an hour, a crowd of male students, also predominantly from Malaysia and Indonesia, flocked in behind him. I realized that many of the male students had been sitting just outside the door of the Rawak, studying and reading as they waited for Sheikh Amr to arrive. All the women got to their feet when he and the male students entered the Rawak. Wearing a brown cloak and turban, Sheikh Amr sat on a low wooden chair in the front of the class. After the opening prayer, he started reading from Jalal al-Din Asyuti's Al-Ashbah wa on the subject of Islamic legal maxims, Al-Qawa'id al-Fiqhiyya. Sheikh Amr read from the chapter called The First Maxim, Matters Are to Be Considered According to Their Objectives. Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Al-Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University, which is dedicated to furthering the scholarly study of Islam and Muslim societies on an interdisciplinary global basis. I'm Mariam Kazmi. And I'm Harry Bastramajian. We're very excited to be joined today by Dr. Mary Elston, who completed her PhD here at Harvard in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and is the winner of the 2020 Al-Walid bin Talal's Prize for Best Dissertation in Islamic Studies for her dissertation entitled Reviving Turaf, Islamic Education in Modern Egypt. This year, Mary is a visiting fellow at the Program on Law and Society in the Muslim World at Harvard Law School and at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. Congratulations, Mary, on completing your PhD, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So we would love to start by hearing a bit about your background um, and what it is that sparked your curiosity about religion, education, and society in modern Egypt. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think this interest of mine really started in college. I don't come from a Muslim background. I didn't 
know very much at all about Islam or the Middle East or the Arabic speaking world before I started my freshman year at Brown University. And I decided out of curiosity to take a class on the history of the modern Middle East with Professor Engin Akarla, who's a historian of the Ottoman Empire. And he was just this really warm, wonderful, encouraging professor. And when I said to him, I'm interested in doing Middle East studies, I think, he said, well, then you must study Arabic. So I did. Um, that was the beginning of many, many years of, of Arabic study, both in college and after. And I think I was driven at that time um, by a desire to study something that felt salient, helped me um, understand more beyond the stereotypes and assumptions that I thought at that time pervaded you know, the media and talking about Islam and the Arabic speaking world. So it, it felt very rewarding um, at that time. And then after college, I was fortunate to get a Fulbright grant to study. I was actually supposed to go to Yemen I ended up going to Jordan um, due to political unrest in Yemen. And in Jordan, I studied at the Qasid Arabic Language Institute. I think you know about that institute. Um, and I had a really wonderful experience there for a variety of reasons. But one of them is I became very interested in how ideas about tradition and religion and conceptions of traditionalism informed the way that I saw Arabic being taught and studied at Qasid. Um, because they have both a, cl a classical track where you study mostly the texts um, of sort of Islamic scholarly disciplines. And then they had at that time also a modern standard Arabic track, which was more familiar to me. They, they taught according to Al-Kitab. Um, and I studied actually in both tracks, but was just, yeah, really interested and excited by the classical track and thinking about the connections between um, yeah, conceptions of tradition and then language and language pedagogy. So I, after that, went to the University of Chicago to pursue my master's in anthropology. And after that, I again studied Arabic. Uh, I went to Egypt to do the, uh, the CASA program, the Center for Arabic Study Abroad in Cairo. It was an amazing year to be in Cairo. It was actually the year after the Egyptian revolution. Um, so a time of continuing protest and unrest, but also so much hope and a sense of possibility for the future. So it was just really fascinating to be there then. At CASA, one of the teachers was, was actually Sheikh Amr, the Sheikh who I just um, mentioned in the excerpt that I read. And uh, Sheikh Amr is also a very charismatic, gregarious, warm, friendly human being. And he taught a class called the Sociology of the Fatwa, which I was very interested in. And he invited me and the other students to come to Al-Azhar where he was teaching these morning classes in Islamic jurisprudence. So I went and I was, I was just hooked. I was really fascinated um, by ideas about categories of knowledge. So how people were talking about and understanding the relationship between religious, traditional, modern, scientific knowledge. And it was at that time that I started applying for PhD programs and ultimately came to Harvard to do this project on Al-Azhar. Thank you. I love that there's a Qasid connection to yeah. your story. Yeah. Um, so I would love to transition to talking about your dissertation about modern education at Al-Azhar. So Al-Azhar was founded around 970 by the Fatimids, which makes it an incredibly old and historic institution. Can you tell us a bit about the history of Al-Azhar and what kind of changes it's gone through, especially since the 19th century? 
Yeah, thank you. So as you said, Al-Azhar was founded in the 10th century under the Fatimid Empire, which was a Shi'i empire. It became a Sunni institution under the Ayyubids in the 12th, 13th centuries. After the Ottomans in the 16th century conquered Egypt, Al-Azhar really emerged as the preeminent institution of learning in Cairo. And I think in part due to its preeminence um, in the 19th century, it became the subject of anxieties and also aspirations as they were expressed by Muslim reformers. Um, secondary scholarship sometimes refers to them as uh, modernist thinkers. So individuals such as Jamal al-Din al-Afghani and also Muhammad Abdu. And so this group of thinkers was asking the question, what happened? How is it that the Islamic world, which used to be the source of knowledge, the source of science, you know, uh, yeah, a place where philosophy was being debated and developed, how is it that we have fallen behind the West and Europe in particular, not only politically and economically, but also intellectually? And so the reason that this group of thinkers um, sort of fell upon was uh, the way that education was being conducted and the way that knowledge was being produced by the ulama, the religious scholars at Al-Azhar. So um, there was a sense that the ulama's traditions were characterized by excessive taqlid. So this idea of um, sort of unthinking imitation uh, rather than using reason. Um, and so, and that these traditions were um, sort of leading the Islamic world into a time of stagnation. And that's why they said, like, we're falling behind the West. So what can we do? And the answer was reform, islah. And what followed uh, these discourses at the end of the 19th century, which really continued into the 20th century, was almost 100 years of reform laws imposed on al-Azhar. The first law was proposed in 1865, um, but actually reforms continue until the present moment. Um, and so I'll just give you a few concrete uh, examples of how education changed through these reforms, because actually the history is quite complex and not linear, um, but at the end of the 20th century, things really had changed. So pre-reform education at Al-Azhar took place in the form of the study circle, the halqa. So a sheikh who at that time, they were mostly men, um, would, if he was a distinguished sheikh, he would sit by a pillar and teach from um, a text. It could be a base text, a metan, a commentary, a sharh, a super commentary, a hashia. And he would read, in most cases, this text to a group of students who you know, might record his commentary on the text and that actually might be used as a teaching text. Um, but it was a, a, a way of teaching that was um, very personal in the sense that it was sort of up to each individual sheikh to decide what they wanted to teach at what time, and it was up to the students to attend as they wanted to or not. And it was also up to the sheikh to decide when a student was qualified to teach. So when he felt that a student could teach texts, he would issue them an ijazah, a license, which would locate the student within a chain of transmission uh, going back centuries. But through the reforms, things really changed at Al-Azhar. So this personal mode of authority um, embodied in the ijazah was replaced by a diploma, a shahada, 
which was issued by the institution of Al-Azhar to a student when they had passed exams, for example. The study circle was replaced by lecture halls and classrooms outside of the mosque. So, you know, in schools and, and universities, uh, new buildings. Um, the curriculum changed somewhat as well. Uh, in the pre-reform pre period, they taught the ulum aqliya and naqliya, so the rational and um, transmitted sciences. In the early 20th century, they started teaching the modern sciences, the ulum haditha, um, such as hygiene and geography in the beginning of the 20th century. And then after the 1961 reform, medicine and engineering were added to Al-Azhar University. In addition, studies moved away from this text-based approach where a sheikh would read from a particular text and that was the subject of study to a subject-based approach. So instead of reading Asyuti's Al-Ashbah wa Nadair, you would read, you know, comparative fiqh as a, as a lesson where you'd be studying from modern textbooks written in simplified Arabic. So these are just some examples of how the form and content of education changed. And I should also note that Al-Azhar expanded very significantly. So I think in the early 19th century, Al-Azhar probably had, you know, maybe 10,000 students. That even might be a high estimate. But by the end of the 20th century, Al-Azhar had become a K through 12 education system and also a university system with about 2 million students. So it's part of the Egyptian public school system, essentially a parallel to the schools run by the Ministry of Education in Egypt. So that's an overview of these changes and it's important context for the Turoth revival that I'm highlighting in my dissertation because the students, teachers and ulama of this revival in many cases look at these modernizing reforms as the cause of many of the problems that Egypt is facing today. So there's a sense of wanting to return to these pre-reform texts and practices. What does the conventional historiography say about Al-Azhar during this period of reforms? I'll just give a brief overview of the historiography. Um, there, there used to be a sense in the 1960s, 70s, 80s that as society became more modern, its traditional elements, and maybe specifically its traditional religious elements, might disappear. Um, and so informing this theory, uh, this idea was modernization theory, secularization theory. And as a result, there was a lot of focus um, in those decades on the rise of new religious intellectuals. So individuals, unlike the ulama, who were not trained in the traditional madrasa system, but who still claimed to speak in the name of Islam. In the 1990s, however, uh, scholars realized, wait a second, the ulama have not disappeared and Al-Azhar is still there going strong and actually doing a lot of interesting and complex things. And so scholarship shifted um, more to ask the question of, okay, well, what are the ulama doing? How are they engaging in politics? Um, yeah, how are they sort of making themselves relevant using modern technologies in a modern context? So it's this latter um, body of scholarship that I, that I see myself contributing to in my dissertation, but focusing really on how the ulama are trying to influence understandings of um, Islamic knowledge and education through this idea of Turoth. 
And what is this concept of Turath? And can you tell us a bit about the importance of this term for your project? Yes. So I'll speak just a little bit about the etymology of the term. Turath comes from the Arabic root waritha, to inherit. And it's actually very interesting. In the, in, before the 20th century, if you look at Arabic dictionaries and lexicons, Turath is glossed very specifically to mean inheritance. So it could be property that is inherited. It could be social status and reputation inherited. Um, but it, it referred specifically to what was left to descendants. In the 20th century, this term changes. It actually comes to signify uh, the idea of heritage from ancestors. So a more general idea of heritage, like patrimony. Um, so Turoth can be, can be used to mean intellectual heritage, cultural heritage, etc. And so it's this more general meaning of Turoth that I focus on um, because it is the one that the ulama that I study um, are, are most interested in explicating and, and mobilizing. And in my dissertation, I look at this idea of Turoth primarily through the lens of one sheikh, uh, Ali Guma, who is the former Grand Mufti of Egypt, and today just a really um, prominent uh, Muslim religious scholar in Egypt. Also, I'll note a controversial one because of his engagement um, in politics during the 2011 revolution and the 2013 coup. Uh, he really came down on the side of supporting the coup and, and supporting the violence against Muslim Brotherhood protesters. Um, but Ali Guma is a very complex figure because on the one hand, I, he lost a lot of support. I think many young people in particular felt um, very betrayed by those positions that he took. But on the other hand, he's still really respected and seen as this representative of a traditional authentic approach to the Islamic to the Islamic heritage and, and scholarship. So there's, I would say there's a lot of ambivalence about Ali Guma in Egypt today, but he, yeah, he's all over the media. He's on satellite television and he's written so many books. So, and many of them are about Turoth. So that's, that's one thing I focus on. Um, so for Ali Guma, Turoth refers to human intellectual production in the Islamic world prior to uh, the modernization or westernization of Egypt, which he really locates as happening under the rule of Khadiv Ismail at the end of the 19th century. Guma even, um, you know, is very specific. He says the last representative of Turath was Sheikh Ibrahim al-Bajuri, who was a, a rector of al-Azhar, who died in 1860. Um, and so in a second, I'll explain what happened and, and how these intellectual traditions of the ulama became Turath for Guma. Um, but for him, I'll just say, the intellectual production of the ulama and their intellectual and their educational traditions are characterized uh, by two primary aspects. The first is he says in the way that the ulama produce knowledge throughout these centuries, they always put the Quran and the Sunnah at the center. So this meant that when they pursued astronomy, they were doing it in um, sort of service of religion, just as much as when they were um, you know, engaging with texts of jurisprudence. So that's one aspect. The other aspect uh, is the importance that 
the sort of pre-modern religious scholars placed on verification. So this idea of tawthiq, um, there's, he sort of explains that Muslims wanted to understand truth. They wanted true knowledge with a capital T. So verification or authentication was extremely important. Um, evidence by the Senate or the Isnad, the chain of transmission. I thought I would just read a very short um, description that Goma gives for, for the kind of authentication that happens in the Senate. He writes, every person in a chain of transmission could say the following. I heard this speech letter by letter with inflection and according to this script that is present before us from my Sheikh who was born on this day and died in this year. And his name was so-and-so. He used to laugh and say this and that. And he used to cry in such and such situations. The history of his whole life can be found in a file of this, of this discipline. This Sheikh would also say that he heard this speech from another Sheikh who had all of these particular characteristics. There isn't anyone in this chain of transmission who is unknown to us. So from this, short excerpt, you see that there's a real importance placed on a sort of personal embodied knowledge, right? Like your, rela your personal relationship to your sheikh, where not only are you able to name facts about him when he was born, his name, but you also actually sort of know something about his emotional life, right? So when he cries, when he laughs, it's this very kind of intimate knowledge. And it's this intimate knowledge between a student and a sheikh um, where knowledge is, has to be transmitted in person from the sheikh to the student, that for Guma is really what ensures the correctness, the soundness of, of knowledge. So that was Turoth before uh, the rupture, before it actually became Turoth. Those were the, its characteristics. But as I said, under Ismail, um, there was a process of westernization in Egypt where Goma suggests and, and secondary scholarship agrees that Ismail looked to Europe and to France, perhaps in particular, as a model um, to be emulated in Egypt. And as a result of a variety of, of social changes, there came to be a disharmony between the way society was organized, the way its laws were structured, the clothes people wore, the way people tore um, told time, and worship. So he gives, he gives many examples, and I'll just give one specific one. So um, the opera came to Egypt in, I think Ismail built the opera house in, in 1869. And Guma tells the story of how um, the upper class elites in Egypt, in Cairo, started going to this European form of entertainment, which started late at night and it ended late at night. And so that meant that these elites started sleeping through the dawn prayer but there was sort of a snowball effect that happened from this. Not only did the elites um, sleep through the prayer, but their servants did as well, because they had to stay up late at night waiting for um, these elites to come home. So as a result of, of watching and listening to this European form of entertainment, people stopped praying, essentially. Um, that's the story he tells. Also, people wearing socks made the ritual ablution more difficult. You know, there are all these examples he gives of how society changed to be Europeanized, and it led to um, a situation where people were less oriented to worship. And this, um, there's an effect that pervaded the education system as well, um, where education 
came also to be based on European models. And the result was that the ulama and their traditions became marginalized, they were derided and scorned. Um, and the result is the transformation of the ulama's traditions into Turoth, into this kind of heritage that is not a living heritage. It's not um, living in the present day, it's, it reflects a rupture with the past. And it's this rupture that Guma and his colleagues are trying to overcome by reviving Turoth. So they, they want to reconnect uh, Muslims to the traditions and the intellectual and educational traditions of the ulama. And in doing so, they say they will, they will really counter many of the challenges and problems that Egypt is currently facing, um, really specifically a totaro of extremism, um, which they attribute to um, the marginalization of the ulama and their traditions in the modern period. You talked about reformers like Abdu and Adafrani. Can you tell us a bit about how Ali Goma's ideas about rupture differ from the modernist notions of decline? Yeah, um, you know, I think Goma's relationship to Abdu and modernism is is very interesting and and somewhat complex because, on the one hand, um, you know there's some similarities we see, right? Like both uh, both sort of articulated a certain kind of decline. There are different kinds of decline for Guma. Um, it's the proliferation of ex quote unquote extremist tendencies, which for him is this broad amorphous category that refers to really any group that doesn't follow the ulama's approach to knowledge, but specifically sort of Salafi and Islamist trends. That's, that's the problem that he sees facing the Islamic world, um, in addition to the spread of atheism, where um, Abdu and his followers, uh, you know, were, were more concerned, I think, that uh, they, that the ulama and sort of Islamic knowledge had come to not sort of be the pinnacle of knowledge anymore. And they, they were more concerned by what they saw as an absence of reason sort of in how Muslims were approaching knowledge. And they, they both have um, similar solutions to these, to these related but different problems or similar but different problems. They both look to a past, right? To figure out the way forward. Um, but for Abdu and his followers, that past uh, really was not the post-classical traditions of the ulama. So not the texts and traditions of the 15th to 19th century, but an earlier period. So for Abdu, he wanted to revive um, the teaching and, and studying and publishing of texts written between the 8th through 12th centuries common era. And for, for him, these texts uh, could be, they provided um, an ethical blueprint of how to uh, be authentically and correctly Muslim, um, but in a way that, uh, yeah, prioritized reason and was written in this very, he said, like better kind of Arabic. Um, for him, the post-classical traditions, which he saw as, um, you know, characterized by pedantry and excessive uh, focus on detail and imitation, for him, those traditions were the problem. For Guma, those traditions are not the problem. Like he's all about returning to the Hashia and Sheikh Ibrahim al-Bajuri of the 19th century. So he's he's looking to revive a, you know, the, also the, the classical and the post-classical. For him, it's really, the rupture is really about westernization. Um, 
Um, so, but Goma's relationship to Abdu is interesting because on the one hand, he, you know, he's, his project is distinct from Abdu's. On the other hand, he does see Abdu as a precursor to what he's trying to do. He also sees Abdu as a kind of renewer. Um, and I think when it comes to, um, you know, the, the importance of reason in Islamic uh, scholarship, I think Abdu and, um, and Goma would agree, even though they would disagree about other things such as, you know, the problems of the schools of jurisprudence, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of, it's interesting to see the parallels and yet they're calling for a return to different pasts that are being mobilized towards different presents, if that makes sense. Another question I have about uh, Gomara's ideas of the of this rupture are whether he sees European colonization as playing a significant role. You know, he definitely is blaming Westernization. Um, but he doesn't call out colonialism. He doesn't call out the British. And, and I'm not entirely sure of exactly how to grapple with that, but it's much more sort of blaming, I would say like internal domestic elites for their, their turn towards Europe, right? And their ill treatment of the ulama. That's how he sees it. In uh, chapters three and four, uh, you situate uh, the Turath revival in relation to critiques made against Al-Azhar and the ulema in the modern period. Can you tell us more about these critiques and their uh, salience to your, to your project? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, one of them is sort of this idea of Islamic reform and modernism, which we, you know, we talked about um, and sort of I, the ambivalent relationship that I think the Turath revival has with reformism and modernism at the end of the 19th century, where they're actually looking to revive a tradition, part of a tradition that the reformers of the 19th century were very critical of. Um, and yet the reform movement is a precursor to the Turoth revival as they articulate it. So that's, that's one. Um, the other is um, not as much sort of critiques of Al-Azhar, but more um, this idea of extremism, which in the Olema's discourses, I think it really acts as a foil or sort of like a counter model against which they're defining the Turoth revival. So as I said, extremists, uh, sort of it, alleged extremists, it, it's a very broad category. It refers to anyone who really doesn't follow the Olema's approach when it comes to Islamic knowledge. And, you know, there's sort of this caricature description that, that I've heard in the Olema's discourses, right? It's people who, who don't take knowledge from sheikhs, who take knowledge in a very fragmented and arbitrary way and leading to arbitrary and, and unsound interpretations that essentially leads to violence in society and also atheism. That's, that's the, the narrative that you hear. And, and they construct that, right? They like perpetuate that as, as um, in their texts. And I'll say too, like the Egyptian state um, is, is part of that construction of extremism. Um, you know, since the 90s at least, but going back further, the Egyptian state has had a problem with oppositional Islamist uh, tendencies and, and efforts to repress um, the Muslim Brotherhood and really like non-state religious, religious actors, non-state condoned actors has, I would say, intensified after the 2013 coup. And, um, you know, Sisi has, has put pressure on Egypt uh, sorry, not on Egypt, but on Al-Azhar and the ulama to 
to do something like to, I think he's, he called on them to renew the religious discourse, but sort of implying that they're to blame for prob for the existence of groups like Daesh um, and Al-Qaeda and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, their solution to this problem of extremism is to, uh, is to return to Turoth, to revive Turoth. Um, and I'll just say like the ulama are responding to what in the 20th century became a very crowded religious field, right? Um, where, I mean, and there's Eichelman and Piscatori have their, their classic articulation of this, but with the rise of, um, you know, communication technologies, education, literacy rates, more and more people who didn't come from madrasa style education were speaking in the name of Islam. And um, that this, you know, they argue this led to a fragmentation of authority the, and others have said the proliferation of authority, but really the point is the ulama are, are not the only ones, right? Like trying to define or decide what counts as sound Islamic education and knowledge. And so this Turath revival, I think is, is a recent effort to sort of reassert themselves um, and their interpretations and their practices like in, in, the, in the field of religious education in Egypt. In chapters four, five, and six, you use ethnography to describe the Turath revival at Al-Azhar today. Can you describe for our listeners some of the main institutions, practices, and individuals that you highlight in these chapters? So I wanted, in my project, I wanted to bring together textual analysis and historical analysis with ethnography. And in particular, I was interested in looking at the construction of Turath in texts and sort of official discourses, <clears throat> but then also in the practices of students and the actual individuals who populate uh, the study circles. So most of my ethnographic chapters focus on um, the Majalis Almiya, which are the study circles in El Azhar Mosque. These circles were revived in the 1990s, really through the efforts of Ali Goma. And they, you know, they teach Turath according to what they describe as the Menhaj al-Azhar, so the Azhar methodology. This methodology they define in a, in a simple way, it's Ash'arian creed, meaning it follows the Ash'ari school um, of theology and understanding creed. It's Madhabi and Fiqh, so it approaches Islamic jurisprudence through one of the established schools. And then it's, it's Sufi um, in sort of in practice. And in their discourses, if you study Islamic knowledge, according to this menhaj, you will uh, sort of arrive at a wasati, or a centrist, which is opposed to extremist, a centrist understanding of Islam. And so if you go to Al-Azhar Mosque, literally any time of day, you can go, anyone can go sit in a halqa, in a majlis and listen to a sheikh read a text from the post-classical period or the classical period. Um, and it, it's quite interesting because they're sort of reframing or, or re-mobilizing these practices um, that in the pre-reform period were really aimed at um, graduating an elite, right? Like elite scholars who would work as judges and lawyers um, and teachers. Um, but they're making these practices and these texts actually available to, to anyone. They're free and open. These classes are free and open to the public. 
Um, and the students in them are quite diverse. Uh, I would say probably most of them are students at Al-Azhar University, many of whom are, are foreigners. Um, but, they're, but they're certainly not only students. Um, there's you know, Egyptians, men and women, um, people who don't have religious studies backgrounds who are doctors who just want to understand Islam. So they're trying to appeal to um, a, broader, a broader swath of society. Um, and I think they're also trying to provide some kind of counterbalance to the kinds of uh, mosque lessons that Sabah Mahmoud describes in her book, The, Polit the Politics of Piety, which those kinds of lessons are, were not happening, to my knowledge, under the purview of the ulama and al-Azhar. And so the Azhar study circles, as I described them in my dissertation, are at the heart of this network of institutions that I've called the parallel Azhar sector. So I've called it parallel because that's how um, students described it to me, parallel to official Azhar education. So the education that you receive in Al-Azhar University and the institutes, the K through 12 institutes. And um, you know, the idea that I heard students expressed is that because education in official Azhar institutions was modernized, um, and for a variety of reasons, that education is really inferior to sort of the true, authentic, traditional education that you can get at Al-Azhar Mosque. And um, in addition to Al-Azhar Mosque, other, there are other mosques in the Azhar neighborhood that, that teach the Azhar Menhaj. There's also uh, these guest houses, Maldiafa is the term, that teach really the, really the same um, kinds of classes. Um, and then there are these nonprofit institutes. Sheikh El Amud is a, is one of the most well known ones, where they they also teach the Azhar Menhaj, um, but they they seem to be targeting a different group of people, a more middle class, I would say, Egyptian uh, student population. And what I've tried to highlight in some of the ethnographic chapters is that even though there's a general agreement about uh, the importance of Torah and the Azhar Menhaj, these institutions. Take, have different ideas about the best way to do this, the best way to make Torah accessible to modern contemporary students. So um, most of these disagreements actually are about sort of the form that the lessons take. So I'll, I'll just give one specific example. Um, so there's a, there's a difference of opinion about the approach to time. And um, so Sheikh Amr, who's most of whose lessons, he was the person whose lessons I attended most in my ethnography. Um, he, he sort of described his approach to teaching as being above time. And what he meant by that is he wasn't, he wasn't teaching, um, you know, for the paycheck an exam, some kind of, you know, like, immediate goal that would require working through a text quickly. Um, instead, he's, he's teaching the text really like as a, as a practice of worship. Um, and what that meant is he would read these texts, which are extremely long, most of them, um, like Asyuti's Elishbeh Wanadayu. And he like, you know, pretty much reads every word from the text and in a lesson, he might read one sentence and then discuss the, the sentence at length with the students for the whole hour. So like I started attending his lessons in 2012. And when I returned in 2016 for my field work, he was, you know, teaching the same books and like hadn't really gotten that much farther as far as I could tell. Um, and so there's an idea and I heard it expressed 
it, among students in the in the study circles that the modern academic calendar where teaching is divided into semesters and five days a week and you know an hour a day or whatever it is that this is just not conducive to teaching Torah. You can't get through a Torah text teaching that way. And so Sheikh Amr's approach is the one that is, you know, the true authentic approach. Now, I should say that did the ulama in the pre-reform period really teach that way? I mean, actually, I think the answer is no. I mean, maybe some people did, but um, I mean, in my dissertation, I actually describe a reform law in 1865 where the sheikh is also frustrated that the ulama are just teaching to like get through the text you know he's like you need to pay attention to if students are understanding um but when i say there's disagreement about this approach to time you know sheikh amr's approach is seen as the most traditional and authentic but it's perhaps not that conducive to like the demands of students so these nonprofit institutes tend to teach in time limited courses that students sign up for and you pay a registration fee and you take an exam at the end and you know you have a sense of your progress. So these are just some of the um, some examples of the difference in approach of how to make Torah accessible um, and meaningful for students in the contemporary Egyptian context. I thought it was interesting that the Torah revival is often contrasted with the official Azhar system, but at the same time, it's state-sanctioned in a way. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between the Torah revival and the state and why the state is invested in this project? I guess you touched on it, but... Yeah, I touched on it a little bit, um, and, it, and it is a very... It's, it's interesting because on the one hand, Right. The, the project, Guma's project of countering the, you know, so-called extremists is, is really um, in line with, with state goals. Like there's, there's no doubt about it. And um, the ulama wanting to sort of reassert themselves as the authorities when it comes to Islamic knowledge and education is really something that I think the Egyptian state gets behind. Like it's really, um, you know, in keeping with what they're trying to do in repressing um, oppositional tendencies in Egypt. At the same time, it's very interesting because um, there are various disagreements, you could say, between state media commentators and the ulama about this question of Torah. And um, I touch on it a little bit in my dissertation. Um, but, you know, if you look at um, media debates, like in the past five years or something, you see, and, and this debate actually goes back much further, but you see that in the in state, there's a sense amongst state media commentators that uh, Toroth is actually the cause of extremism, right? That there's sort of passages in Toroth, in the Hadith text and jurisprudential texts in particular, that are the reason that you have Muslim youth like joining groups like Daesh and things like that. And so some argue, listen, Al-Azhar, you need to you need to like take that stuff out of these texts, these problem that problematic um, passage on jihad and and things related to slavery, etc. You you really need to take things out of the text. And you know, I would say there's different opinions amongst the ulama, and it also depends on like what what their position is. So in the study circles, to my knowledge, um, I mean maybe I'm missing something, but my impression is they read the whole text, you know, mm -hmm. and like 
what they argue is, listen, if you're studying at the hands of a sheikh, you're, in, you're imbibing his, his ethical outlook and being as much as his knowledge. And that's what leads to centrism. It's really mm -hmm. studying at the hands or feet of a sheikh. Like that's the idea. But for example, Ahmed Atayeb, who is the rector of Al-Azhar, he um, has undertaken this project of reforming the curriculum of the Azhar Institute. So <clears throat> the K through 12 institutes. And basically his predecessor, um, Tantawi, had taken the jurisprudential schools out of that curriculum and taught something called um, sort of like simplified fiqh which was included, it was sort of a summary of all of the four schools of Sunni jurisprudence. So Ahmed Atayeb has brought back the four schools. He's, and he, you know, he describes himself as bringing back Turoth. Um, but he, in fact, like established a committee that did take out some of the problem, like the seen as problematic passages of these texts. Um, so it's it's this conundrum, it's this question that I think there's a different opinions about, okay, there's agreement about what Toroth is, but then there's disagreement about how do you engage with Toroth, right? Like what's the right way to deal with this heritage um, in our modern context when we're dealing with problems like, um, you know, so-called extremism and, and things like that. Um, and so I find the study circles interesting in relation to into these, to these debates because it does seem like the study circles are a place that on the one hand, there's this strong um, like discourse of countering extremism, which seems very state supported. But on the other hand, yeah, there's not really these debates about like, you know, is it okay to be teaching these texts? And in fact, they really are just te teaching the texts that, um, you know, that they, that they wanna teach. Um, you know, and with with sort of glosses, I think that point towards more tolerant um, interpretation. So, yeah, it's a complex relationship, I think. You talk towards the end of your dissertation about Al-Azhar's use of social media. Can you talk a bit about what kinds of challenges social media poses for the authority of the Odama and the project of reviving the Torah? Yeah, so... You know, there used to be this sense that media technologies like print and, I mean, today social media really challenged the authority of the ulama in negative ways, right? That was part of the modernization, secularization idea. And these days, uh, I think, you know, generally the idea is, oh, wait, they're using these technologies too. Let's see how they're using them. That's sort of the question people are asking. And so the ulama's relationship to social media in Egypt today, I found really interesting during my field work because on the one hand, there's a lot of anxiety about social media. There's a lot of um, sort of connecting between uh, social media and this problem of extremism because, and it makes sense in a way because social media is very hard to control. Um, so on the one hand, there are these discourses expressing anxiety and, and like describing the problems of social media. And then on the other hand, the social media is hugely important in, in how the halakat, how the study circles are, are run. I mean, you can watch like almost any, any study circle on, on YouTube, on Facebook. Um, the lessons are also part of how 
uh, sort of the administrative aspects of the halakat happen. So social media is a really important um, aspect of how the ulama are promoting sort of their brand of Islam and their approach to Islamic knowledge. And what I describe in chapter six of my dissertation is uh, these discourses, I call it a discourse of differentiation that, I, that they've developed where they make these discursive distinctions. So one of the big ones is between between alm, so this idea of authoritative knowledge that is received um, by a student from the ulama in person, like the in-person aspect is really important. And then this idea of ma'lumat or information. So information in the discourses of the ulama is connected to social media, it's connected to um, you know, approaching knowledge without a systematic methodology, right? It's what leads to mostly to extremism. So, you know, on the one hand, the ulama are making alm available on social media. On the other hand, they're trying to discursively like limit sort of the influence social media can have. Um, and, and what I describe is that for the students, including students who are, are very devoted to someone like Ali Guma, you know, these distinctions like almost fall flat. Like they're not, um, they're not necessarily that meaningful. Um, and the reality is that it is for a student, it makes them, you know, perhaps like more committed to the ulama and engaged in their project of reviving Torah um, when they feel that they can, you know, uh, receive alm from a sheikh on social media, right? It, it allows those those practices to be accessible to a broader, a broader group. I would love to hear about your experience doing this field work um, more broadly and also especially as a white American woman who's not Muslim. Yeah, well, I'll just say it was a really wonderful experience during field work. I loved it so much. I met just like the most generous people I've ever met in my life. Like, you know, people approximately my age, late 20s and 30s, who are students of Al-Azhar and teachers there who just really welcomed me and helped me in innumerable ways. I feel like I really learned the meaning of generosity from these people um, and, and including from someone like Sheikh, Sheikh Amr, like I, I was just really, really welcomed. So, so I'll just say that, um, of course, there were many challenges, but I'm not sure most of them were related to being, um, you know, not, not Muslim or a foreigner or a woman. Doing research in Egypt after the um, 2013 coup is, is very difficult and people understandably are very suspicious and like worried about, you know, their safety and um, their position. And what that meant is I, I did encounter a lot of suspicion of you know, I'm a researcher, but am I really a researcher? Am I going to like take their words and um, use it against them somehow? So, you know, like trust, uh, very understandably, was an issue um, that I had to, you know, figure out. I had to like find the people who understood what I was doing and were willing to and felt comfortable, right? Like talking to me. Um, I did, there was a moment in the beginning of my research when I wanted to attend classes at Al-Azhar University, the women's college, and I needed permission to do that. And the person I went to for permission said, mm -mm, like, you're not Muslim, this is a Muslim university, sorry, you can't, you can't come. And then, you know, like many things in Egypt, uh, 
I was through a connection, I was able to eventually get access. Um, I, I had a connection to Ahmed Atayeb, the rector of Al Azhar, and you know, he was very, very kind and welcoming. And he said, you know, we're a tolerant institution. We want non-Muslims to stay here. So yeah, he facilitated uh, my ability to attend classes in the women's college at Al Azhar um, University. So there were some challenges, but overall, yeah, it was a wonderful experience and I hope, I hope to go back. Thank you. Um, yeah, your research is definitely making me want to go to Egypt. So <laughs> hopefully yeah, you I should. can make that happen. So you used a, an innovative combination of historical textual analysis and ethnography. What made you choose these particular methods? Well, as I sort of mentioned um, earlier in our discussion, I, I really started my interest um, in getting a PhD through, through anthropology. Like I was at first really interested in anthropology. I really appreciated how anthropology as a field is interested in, in sort of, um, you know, looking at non-elite voices, which not all anthropologists do that. And I don't exactly do that in my research, but I liked how you know, there's a sense of looking at social life, which is very messy, right? It's hard to make sense of. And I think some of what anthropologists do is they try to illuminate the logics and the reasoning and the order that actually exists in the messiness, right? What looks messy when you're an outsider, when when it's not the system that, that you're used to. Um, and I'm just, I'm really drawn to people. I think that's the thing that I love most actually in my research where it's all the people that I've met. Um, and so that was my beginning was ethnography. And then interestingly, I did a PhD in Near Eastern languages and civilizations, which is you know, not a department where very many people do ethnography, um, but I'm very grateful that I did and that I sort of took this more textual turn because you know, texts are really important to the community that I study. So um, I, I hope that by, by bringing these methods together, I can you know, better illuminate sort of the interaction between, between texts and social life, which um, yeah, I think are mutually transforming of each other. And, and I try to capture that in my dissertation. Yeah, that's, uh, thank you, uh, you know, sort of building on that. Um, Islamic studies traditionally has lived in the humanities and is increasingly uh, interdisciplinary. Uh, how do you, how does your research contribute to this broadening uh, nature of Islamic studies? Well, I really hope my research shows that these uh, disparate, seemingly disparate methods, so ethnography and a, a focus on social life and the way meaning is made in social life, and an understanding of the textual tradition and um, the texts themselves. I hope it shows that these, these different approaches can be meaningfully um, brought together. And, you know, it's some, as I've gotten older, I've sort of observed, and maybe it's an exaggeration to say this, but I feel like Islamic studies sometimes seems kind of divided. Like there's the anthropologist and then there are like the people who do sort of pre-modern texts. And I feel that sometimes there's not a lot of like mutual admiration when maybe I think there should be. And that could be an overstatement, but 
Um, the reality is that life is messy, right? It's not divided between the humanities and the social sciences. And I, I really, I see that so much in um, this, this concept of troth, right? It's, it's in the present, it's constructed in texts and practices, but it's a particular conception of the past, right? It's based on a particular um, construction of history and also um, a history, like these changes that happened in education. And I, I guess I do think that interdisciplinary approaches, you know, perhaps lend themselves more to being able to capture this kind of complexity, this kind of complex temporality um, and, and the messiness of it, which, right, is, is, is how, I, how I've experienced, you know, life and this world at Al-Azhar that I try to capture somewhat in my dissertation. So what's next for you in your research? Well, first and foremost is, you know, turning the dissertation into a book. And I have, of course, a long list of things I want to do to keep improving it and, and doing research um, for it and publishing articles. And, you know, down the road, I will move to my, my next book project. And I'm, I'm thinking of taking a more historical approach, but hopefully using um, oral history methods as well. To, to try to look at how traditionalism was understood and experienced uh, by ulama in the 20th century. So I guess I have the sense that in Islamic studies, the 20th century um, has people have primarily focused on sort of Islamists and Salafis, but um, the fact is the study circles continued, um, you know, these traditional practices actually didn't cease and there are ulama, you know, engaged in them and, and doing them. So I, I want to try to um, sort of look at that history a little bit more. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Thank yes, you, guys. Thank you, Mary. Thank yeah, you so much for being our, our, first in, uh, our first guest. I'm honored. Thank you. <laughs> All right, take All care. Right, take Bye. care, Mary. Mm -hmm. All right. You've been listening to the podcast of the Al-Walid Islamic Studies program at Harvard University. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit our website, islamicstudies.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening.